Hi, this is John, and today on Theocast, we are going to be explaining what Biblicism is. There's a lot of theological confusion and categories and systems and theology that have been birthed out of Biblicism, and we're going to explain to you what it is, how to refrain from it, and how to spot it when you see it. Stay tuned. A simple and easy way for you to help support Theocast each month is by shopping at Amazon through the Amazon Smile program. When you make a purchase through Amazon Smile, a portion of the proceeds will be donated to our ministry. To learn how to sign up, just go to theocast.org slash give. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Conversations about the Christian life from a Reformed and pastoral perspective. Today, your hosts are Justin Perdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. And I am John Moffat. I'm the pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. It's good to be with you this morning. Justin, uh, we had this conversation earlier. Often we think about what books we want to give away, and sometimes we think books are so good, we give them away twice. This might even be our third time. I don't know. Who knows? I think it's Who the cares? second time. Who cares? It's free. If it's a good book That's right. and you're getting it for free, who cares? Right. That's right. We yeah, should probably given, have we probably have Renahan on the podcast too. Well, and now that John's giving it away. Yeah. The no. suspense is yeah. The air has been hey, let out. He's of the written more than All one right. book. He has. So that's true. So given the subject matter of today's conversation, which we're going to set up here in just a moment, we were racking our brains as to a good resource to give to our selected winner. And since and we also know you already have a Bible, so Word. That would yeah. be our first. There's only there's only one must read in history. You know, and it's, it is the script. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Give it away. Give it away. Sorry for that. All right. So the giveaway book this week is for the second time I think since we started doing this mm. is by our friend Samuel Renahan. The book is entitled "The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom." And yeah, I think it will become obvious perhaps for the reasons why we're giving this away. Really good book on covenant theology, but he also does a lot of good stuff there on typology and just redemptive historical framework of the Bible and yeah, stuff that we find useful and helpful. And so the winner this week under the sovereignty of almighty God and also via the mechanism of the wheel of names is none other than Debbie Morrison. Yay. So Debbie, uh, we are excited to have you as a, a SR new member, member. partnering with Theocast yeah. and a newer member. So thank you sister for, uh, locking arms with us in that way. And we hope that this book is an encouragement to you. If you do not get a message from us about how to get your free book, then just shoot us an email or a message and we'll happily get that book to you. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're wondering how you could get a free copy of Sam Renahan's excellent book, you can do the following. You can go to any of our social media handles today on the day the podcast releases, which would be a Wednesday. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and there will be instructions on how you could win the other free giveaway, which will be announced tomorrow, which is Thursday. So hopefully that was clear enough. And I think we'll have a link in the show notes to Amazon or something like that, or wherever one can buy Sam's book. Unfortunately, if you just, I don't think it's on Amazon. It on Amazon. I was no. going to say, I don't think it's on Amazon. I wish you would do go. a Kindle version, but it's only at Founders. So anyway, to, yeah. So third party site. So we'll have a link to it, I think, in the show notes, though if you wanted to go buy the book for yourself. And I mean, given our pattern, we may be giving it away again in two months. So just stick around long enough. And <laughs> you never know. Maybe you'll get it that way. Or we could take some book recommendations. Hey, anybody that wants us to review a book, 
So I think we may not talk about it on the podcast, but you can send it to us. Our address is at theocast.org. And uh, if you guys want to, anytime, if you want to send us anything, you know, anything like hair product for Justin, any of that good stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, mine's buzzed off, dude. I don't really need any. <laughs> if you want to send me some good beard oil, I'll take that. There you go. All righty. Well, today is a podcast we probably been needing to do for a long time, and we reference it often. But we do. Um, We've know, even the, promised to do a podcast on it multiple times. Yeah, I know. But the real estate on podcast is is uh, very small, so we have to be choosy on what we pick. But today well, and, we're doing something. And bottom on, line, we do what we feel like doing. Yeah, I know. But what we, 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 we get excited about, but we and what anyway. I think our church, my church, needs to hear. Yeah, biblicism. Man, biblicism is a word. I saw someone use it the other day. I'm a biblicist. And I was like, oh, mm. someone should tell him not to say that. That's mm. not. Yeah. No, it's, that's not. It's, it's not, not a badge of honor. No, it's a, it's a negative thing. And we're going to explain to you why someone might think, well, why would Bible and ism be a bad thing? Typically, isms aren't good. Um, True. Not always the case. I mean, Calvinism isn't necessarily, I think, bad. It's uh it's gotten a bad uh, rap, which I just did an introduction to that on Ask the Ocast. You can go check that out. But to stay focused, Biblicism, Justin, give us a quick definition of what it is, and then we are going to work through about five or six examples of what happens when you don't use Scripture properly or you're a Biblicist. This yeah. is what it ends up producing. So what's a good definition, a simple definition for our listener of a biblicist. Yeah. So let me just define it in a simple way and even just use pop level accessible language to talk about this. You already alluded to it once when you said uh, like a person would describe themselves as a Bible person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another way that you hear this commonly presented is people will say, well, you know, no creed, but Christ or no, no, no confession, but the Bible Mm -hmm. uh, where people will say that the only thing that we need to use is scripture and any kind of framework outside of the Bible or any tools outside of the Bible are not useful. Uh, it's not faithful. It's not responsible to use such things to understand the scripture. And so you end up getting this, this kind of a situation where people will say, if the text does not say it explicitly, then we cannot preach it. We cannot teach it. And, and the reverse in- is true. The text explicitly said it, therefore right. I'm going to preach it. Sure. And what ends up happening, and we're going to give illustrations of this, like you said, broad categories and the like, what ends up happening is you make the Bible sound very schizophrenic because you you just quote chapter and verse in isolation, and you don't interpret that verse within its broader context, even maybe within it, the, the book that it's situated in, let alone within the epic of redemptive history that it's situated in, or let alone the entire Bible. And so you end up kind of introducing mystery and tension into the scripture where it does not exist. And you end up introducing things that sound contradictory and just really confusing your listener when the Bible rightly understood on its own terms with appropriate theological systems in place is not contradictory. It is not confusing. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and there is going to be mystery, but we want to put the mystery in the right place. And so biblicism is dangerous on a number of levels because as you're going to hear us talk about, there there really are not hardly any key areas of doctrine that would not be compromised or confused by a biblicism, uh, biblicistic, I don't even know the right way to 
put that in that context. <laughs> if you're using biblicism and, and you're a biblicist, you're going to confuse most every major doctrinal categories. Yeah, can um, I give an example here? Yeah. A simple one would be Colossians 1.15. He is the firstborn of all creation. You sure. could conclude that Jesus is born or even a created being if you do not allow all of Scripture to inform you about the nature of who Christ is, and I would even dare say the Trinity. So many biblicists in the past have become heretical. Arian would be a great example of this, yeah, where they isolate text and they don't allow what would say the analogy of faith or all of Scripture to speak into a theological position or a particular text. And a good right. example of this is that there are many people, even in the past, even I'm sorry, even recent days, who do not understand the nature of Jesus because they read individual texts and say, well, if that's what it says. I'm going to take it to be literally in the English without even using biblical language. Sure. That's exactly what it means in the English. That's exactly what it means. Therefore, that's what I believe. So proof texting is an right. example of biblicism, right? where you cite chapter and verse in isolation to prove a point. Right. That's a, a common mistake that people right. make. And it's very interesting. I mean, maybe a humorous way to put this too is when you get people really worked up about these things and they will say, as I alluded to earlier, that we, I have no confession but the Bible mm-hmm. and no creed but Christ as they wave their study Bible in your face. You know, and it's like, well, what, what do you think those study notes are right. you know, other than an exercise in systematic theology and biblical theology and everything else that people seem allergic to? So we did an episode a while back, John, I think something along the lines of, is your theological system any good? Mm -hmm. And that would be a useful episode, I think, for people to go back and listen to, because we are going to contend today that the scriptures present to us certain frameworks and systems of theology that come up out of the text that we then can utilize to better understand the text. And a couple of those are going to be the redemptive historical framework and for us as Reformed guys, a covenantal framework of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And those things are really helpful. And a biblicist is going to press really, really hard against both of those things because they're going to say, wow, you know, that's, that's a system that you're imposing down on the Bible and we shouldn't do that. And um, yeah, you're being irresponsible in the ways that you're understanding and interpreting the scripture. That's and right. hopefully we're going to demonstrate how, uh, if anything, biblicism is the much more dangerous, irresponsible perspective today. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Biblicism. And I think, as you said, you know, proof texting is, is really, is, you know, I, I do a lot of internet research for things. And recently I'm doing a series on Calvinism for Ask the Ocast and just reading different arguments here and there. And the proof texting on either side, the Calvinist Can be bad. Totally. or the, yeah, free will. I hate to say Armenian because there's well, brother, really and just to be are, yeah, just to be very clear, I mean, there are people that could consider themselves to be reformed who do who can be biblicists from time to time, and we uh, want to yes, I mean, and we want to be so. you want to be fair, and I mean, anybody can be a biblicist, right? Um, and I mean, I'm sure you and I have been at certain points not meaning to be, no, you know, and and so anyway, yeah, yeah. So I think really what we're arguing is that being able to identify biblicist tendencies or act, you know, passages that we may have interpreted in the past where we have not allowed what we would, what we're going to argue for is context and, and tried and true 
theological categories, yes. right? For instance, let me give you this one illustration. I think it's it's the most simple one that I've always used. When you read any text of scripture that has relation into God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, you do not read them if you are an evangelical who's been trained in a good church. You never read those without understanding that that is one in three. Another mm-hmm. way of saying that is you're reading it by a theological system called Trinitarianism. Word. And we, it's important that you do so because it helps you fully understand that this isn't one God working in opposition or in isolation to the other gods because we're not mm-hmm. polytheist. We're monotheist, meaning poly meaning multiple, mono meaning one. We are monotheists who believe in a Trinitarian. I mean, it, it is a complicated system, but it's important to believe that because Jesus will say things like, I and my father are one, right? Mm-hmm. And these have to be read in a Trinitarian context. So you, you, I will, I, I have met biblicists who will allow a Trinitarian context to be set on the text, but that's as like as far as they will go. They won't say mm-hmm. basically all other theological systems they will not allow because it's not biblical. <laughs> I'm like, but yet you allow the Trinitarian system to guide you, and it's not the only theological system in the Bible presented to us clearly in the text. We're going to mm-hmm. argue a couple for a couple others here in just a minute. So, Justin, I'm going to yep. throw that back to you because I know you have a comment. Well, I'm ready to launch into some categories, man. Good, let's do it. Okay. All right. So one of the one of the categories that's most important that we are convinced, John and I, uh, and we're not alone amongst the reform in seeing this, um, that biblicism really, really just botches is the distinction between law and gospel. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of places we could go. I mean, I, there, I'm I'm mindful of several examples in the the life and ministry of Jesus where people will cite Christ, you know, in terms of chapter and verse, in terms of what God requires out from the lips of Jesus himself and say, see, there it is. There's how, there's the road to salvation. That's the way of salvation. What Christ has just been saying Uh, when Jesus has in in fact been actually speaking a message of law, like here is how you inherit the kingdom of God. Here is what you need to do uh, in order to be in right relationship with God. And people will say, well, that's that's somehow a part and parcel of the good news. Uh, one of the the greatest examples of this is a large section of scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, mm-hmm. where people will say things like the Sermon on the Mount is gospel, to which we would say, no, okay, a much more careful reading of that text, a redemptive historical reading of that text, and a reading of that text with an eye for law and gospel distinction would actually lead you to conclude that that sermon is a sermon on the law, not right. the gospel. In terms right. of what God does require of us, not just at the level of outward conformity, but at the level of the heart and the mind and the desires and everything else. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that becomes quite clear as Jesus begins to discuss the law pointedly in Matthew five seventeen and following. Here is what you've heard, but here is what it actually means for you. Right. And he more or less damns everybody who hears him by saying, you think you've done okay, but you haven't. You you haven't kept the law, and uh, this is what the Lord requires of you. And in fact, you need to be perfect, like your heavenly Father is perfect. Mm-hmm. And so that that confusion of law and gospel in the life and ministry of Jesus is a big deal. I want to reference a passage from one of the minor prophets in a second, John, because yeah. I mean, why not? But you can maybe jump yeah, in while yeah, I'm I would turning. 
right? So the gospel is the way in which the Bible presents it is a a message, right? It's um, information, but it also is a theological category, meaning what is allowed to fit inside the word gospel. It it is very it's a very closed, tight knit bubble. Like there's only so much that can be in there, and if you add anything into it, you are now um, changing what the gospel is. And this is why Paul gets very upset and he even says, hey, if anybody comes to you and starts teaching you anything other than what you've already been taught, adding to the gospel, Paul is arguing for the clarity and he's saying, this is encapsulated and cannot be changed. it's It's been set forth in the moment you start altering it. And you have to read every passage of the Bible with a clear understanding of gospel, because mm-hmm. if you don't, then you will get, as our good friend Pat Abendroth likes to call it, I don't know where if he, maybe he made it up, but you get gospel. Mm-hmm. You get the law and the gospel together. So the gospel is must be clarified. And if it's not, and you have, and, and, and this is because Justin, there are times where people will be reading as you, as Sermon on the Mount is a great example of this. I would also say the rich young ruler, which we use in the past as an example, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gives him what he needs to do if he wants to inherit it, like if Mm -hmm. he wants to receive it by earning. And Jesus says, if you would be be perfect, you need to do this. That's not gospel. That's law. And when you understand gospel and you have the category of gospel and you're holding that lens in your mind and then you read Jesus, you go, oh, well, Jesus didn't give him gospel. But what do we do? Biblicists will say, no, Jesus answered the question, therefore it's good news. Jesus just told people what they need to do to inherit eternal life. So we need to go about the business of doing it. Right. We have to forsake everything. We need to sell all our possessions of the biblicist when law and gospel are confused. Another great example from the Old Testament, if I can really quickly, before we move forward, the prophet Micah chapter six. So the context in the book of Micah for Micah six, the Lord begins that chapter by indicting his people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every, I mean, they're guilty. They, They stand condemned before him. And then the prophet goes on in verse six and following of Micah six to write these things. He's kind of hypothetically sort of speaking for the people here, right? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And since the sarcasm here, like, Lord, you're extreme. What do you require? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000s of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then Micah says, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, what people do with that passage, John, is they they read that and they say, see, here it is. The Lord is not satisfied with empty ritualistic religion. He is not interested in people's sacrifices. What he is interested in is the true religion of doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly before him. And so now you need to be a true religion, an old-time religion kind of person who is characterized by the doing of justice, the loving of kindness, and the walking humbly before your God, and the Lord will be pleased with you. Again, that's biblicism, right? That the prophet there is not giving people a message of gospel either. He's telling folks, 
a better understanding of what the Lord requires actually is this heart level reality. It's not external conformity to a written code, but it's a heart level reality of doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly before your God. Nobody's ever done it well enough. That's the thing, right? And so this is where you go to that verse, Micah 6, 8 is often posited as sort of kind of an Old Testament presentation of the gospel. And I'm like, it's not. No. It's not. It's an Old Testament presentation of the law, very similar to how Jesus presents it in the Sermon on the Mount and other places in his ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, learn what this means. I desired mercy and not sacrifice, et cetera, right? It's right. Yeah. I believe with all my heart that God blesses righteousness. Amen, dude. He does Me not too. lie. It reflects who he is. It's just, Paul tells us there is none righteous. And our good works, according to Jeremiah, are compared to really disgusting, you know, filthy rags. Yeah. Uh, and those those are important. They're they're not opposition to each other. So so you just beautifully segue to another category. You I mean you're just giving me the thumbs up cuz John <laughs> it's like you're a professional. So <laughs> the next category is massive. So law and gospel is massive. This mm. one is at least as important and it is the confusion between faith and works. And so biblicism is notorious for muddling this up to the high heavens. How is it that we're justified? How is it that we're finally saved even? Mm -hmm. Is it by faith or is it by our works? And the classic text for me, I could go to a number, John, but Romans 2 and kind of in the context, Romans 2 to 3 is really, really illustrative, I think. Right. And so Romans 2 begins, Paul has already indicted all the brilliant Gentiles at the end of Romans 1. And then he begins in at the, at the beginning of Romans 2 to talk to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, because we all pass judgment on other people for not meeting our own standards. And if mm. if people can't, they, they don't meet our standards and we pass judgment on them, we need to realize that we don't meet our own standards and thereby we condemn ourselves with our judging. And it's like if we haven't even met our own standards, how much less so have we met God's standard, right? And so... We misunderstand God's kindness, not understanding that it's meant to lead men toward repentance. And then Paul goes in Romans 2, 6 and following. And as the Reformed theologian Robert Haldane once said, you either leave Romans 2, 6 and following a Protestant or a Romanist. And I think mm-hmm. he's right. Yeah. There's no, there's no middle ground here in terms of how you can interpret it. And let me say this kindly, but sincerely, there are a lot of people, like if you pick up a Romans commentary, there are a lot of guys who, you know, otherwise are pretty reasonable who absolutely lose their minds when it comes to <laughs> Romans 2, 6 through like 13. Uh, so let's just read a few of these verses and talk about what biblicists do with it and then talk about how we should understand it, even in the context of Romans. Romans 2, 6. This is true about God. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Okay. So what you hear people say, again, otherwise pretty orthodox, like sound teachers, Protestants Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. they come to Romans 2, 6 through 13, and they'll go, okay, 
We know that we are justified by faith. But somehow, somehow, you can see it right here. It's in the text. They just start quoting chapter and verse. Somehow, our works will factor into our final salvation. Because it says so right here, that God will render to each one according to his works. Those who do good, he's going to reward with eternal life. Those who do evil, he's going to punish with wrath and fury. And we would say, okay, uh, no. I mean, that's not the way to interpret that passage. Somehow, mysteriously, our works factor into our final salvation because the question has to be asked in the broader context of Romans, what is Paul doing? He is arguing, there's a flow of his thought that's going to culminate in Romans 3 and verse 21. He's arguing that everybody has judged themselves and judged others. We don't meet our own standard, let alone God's. God is an impartial, righteous judge who rewards those who do good and punishes those who do evil. The problem, though, is that nobody's good, right? Because he's going to go there in Romans 3, 9 and following. Nobody is good. There's not one righteous. No, not one, right? Mm -hmm. So we should be thinking like, oh, dear Lord, we are all damned. That's right. How can anyone be saved? Which is why he says in verse 21 and following, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Mm-hmm. Right? He's concluded that whole section of his argument in verses 19 and 20, where he says that the law condemns everyone, Romans 3, 19. And verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight because the law only crushes people. But yet we go in a biblicism kind of way, we go to Romans 2.6 and we go to Romans 2.13 and we quote it and say, ah, but guys, we've got to work for this. We got to do something. Even though we're saved by faith, somehow our works factor in. And that's just an irresponsible presentation. And what does it do, John? It confuses the nature of the gospel itself. That's right. And robs the saints of assurance. Mm-hmm. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. Yeah, I, this is um, another uh, way of saying this understanding the nature of man and understanding the gospel is two categories we have to hold in both hands as we read every text. So we know from scripture that we are in Adam, meaning that we have received the curse of Adam, which is that our spiritual nature, the capacity to love and obey and please God to trust in him has been cursed unto death. <laughs> Paul describes it as being dead because mm-hmm. we've had to go from death to life. Obviously we are not physically dead. He is speaking about the cursed nature that we have. So you cannot demand a cursed dead nature to do that, which it has no capacity to do, which is obey God. This is um, even in James when, I mean, the classic quote, mm. right? Faith without mm. works is dead. And we we really needle down him. into that. And if I am looking at someone who says to me, I'm, I'm a Christian, and yet they don't see the necessity of producing good fruit, you know, in, in keeping with repentance and obedience, all that, they don't, yeah, I don't need to do that. 
um, I just need to say a prayer and I'm good. Well, I would agree that they're, they are confused. And James is even getting it out in the context saying, okay, look, you're saying you're a follower of Jesus, but the way that you are acting mm-hmm. is contrary to that. And if you're sure. unwilling to repent of that, then the faith you were claiming is a dead faith. Um, you can't, it, it, at that moment, you don't call someone to do something they can't do. Cause at that moment you go, okay, you don't understand the gospel. Exactly. This isn't a works issue. This is a gospel issue because those who have saving faith yep. are going to it's, obey. It's a gospel issue and it's a union with Christ issue. It's a regeneration issue, right? Like if you right. have been born again and if you are not just giving some kind of mental assent to some truth about Jesus, but you are trusting him. If you're hoping in him, that only occurs via the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and you have now been united to Christ, and you will bear fruit. That's what the, that's what the scriptures say. Right. And But yeah, to confuse that, to invert that, to proof text it and say, man, you know, show, faith without works is dead, and um, you know, all these kinds of things like show me your faith by your works, to then conclude, well, we need to go about telling people to do good works so that they know they're saved. Wrong. That's not the conclusion that we draw. We go yeah. about preaching Christ, we tell people to trust Christ, and through their union with him, fruit will be produced. You can't invert that relationship, but biblicism confuses that relationship to no end. And I will, well, I'll just reference this here for two reasons. One, we already have a podcast on it. Two, we have a podcast coming. One, repentance, mm. biblicism. We did um, really a, a needle down focused in on that uh, a couple of weeks ago. If I'm going to go back and listen to what is repentance. We really kind of uh, unfold that from a, what biblicism is. And I would also say lordship salvation falls into this, where sure. a lot of the arguments that you will see, again, in the next coming weeks, we're going to give you some more examples on this. But I'll just say this now. I think lordship salvation is built upon a biblicism it, platform. It completely is in that there's a collapsing of law and gospel. There's a confusion of faith and works. And faithfulness, that's right. Right. Repentance. And there's really a a different definition of faith that mm-hmm. is given in the Lordship camp where obedience and repentance and like a sincere desire to obey and all those kinds of things are woven into the definition of faith. Right. And that is something that historically Protestants have been very careful to not do. And we'll right. talk about that, you know, in, in some subsequent episodes. Right. But you're as one right. example, that's right. kind of like a precursor to that is totally. the, 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 when you, um, as a reformed and even Calvinist, when you understand the depravity of man and the sovereign election of God as it relates to our salvation, the the biblicism of lordship doesn't seem to work. Um, I would I would agree with the fact that when Jesus saves me and brings me to new life, I am now owned by Him, and totally. I am gladly thankful well, that He is my Lord. But I don't have the capacity to make that right change within myself or determine that that is handed to me. It's not something that is given to me as if there's something I must do in order to be a child of God. And the bottom line too, is that when you have been united to Christ by faith, you now Romans 6, 17 have become obedient from the heart, right? You actually do desire to obey God, but the desire to obey is not a piece of faith itself, Mm -hmm. right? The the new birth that is worked by God produces faith. And then the fruits of regeneration and faith are a desire to obey amongst a whole host of other things, yep. but you can't confuse that. And we're going to, we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. And I'm excited 
for those conversations. So if you're interested yep. in hearing those, stay tuned. It's coming your way well, soon. Well, you can go back and listen to the one on repentance. And totally. I think in two weeks, you'll hear the one on Lordship, yeah. So. And so now maybe last big category or maybe one of the last couple big categories in the regular portion of the podcast is also a reference back to an episode we did. I think it would have been the one released last week, potentially mm-hmm. on uh, typology and right. uh, types and shadows and all those kinds of things. Like, is the whole Bible really about Jesus? Right. You know, and so just to briefly pick back up on this and to help explain how biblicism is unhelpful here, we talk regularly about how the whole Bible really is about Christ, that it's about the plan of redemption that God has had since before the foundation of the world that centers on Christ, that's accomplished through him, that's then applied to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, all to the praise of God's glorious grace. And so we interpret every passage of scripture in light of that main message, in light of that main point. And we realize that the way that God has revealed his plan of redemption by farther steps through history and in the pages of scripture, there are all of these things that serve as types of something greater to come. They're shadows and the substance is going to come. There are pointers to things that are going to come later that are ultimate, that will fulfill them. And so when we preach anything in the Old Testament, for example, uh, I could think of a number of examples, whether this, the obvious ones are like the Passover. Um, When we preach the Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, when we preach the Day of Atonement or whatever it may be, we're talking about those in light of Christ and what he would come to do. Uh, he's the Passover lamb. He is you know, the one who has atoned for our sin and removed it from us. He is going to deliver us not out of bondage to Egypt, but from bondage to sin and death, right, and Satan. But we should, we would argue, be preaching the entire Old Testament this way. And sometimes people get really worked up when we preach a very— um, in a very Christocentric, a Christ-centered way from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. a biblicist will say, um, brother, you are not giving appropriate attention to the original author's intent. Because mm-hmm. did Moses fully understand you know, everything that you're saying about Jesus? Or did David fully understand everything that you're saying about Jesus from the Psalms? Or did Micah understand or fill in the blank? Did this Old Testament prophet understand everything that you're saying? about Christ. Hmm. And so a biblicist will rail against a Christ-centered sermon sometimes from the Old Testament because we are not doing justice to the original author's intention, to which I just, I want to say this humbly, but I would stake my ministry on this, John. Is it legitimate, for example, um, to preach baptism from Noah and the ark? Yes. I mean, Peter makes that connection for us in 1 Peter 3. Um, but what should we preach when we preach a sermon on on the ark and the flood? Well, we should preach salvation. We should preach baptism, and we should preach Christ as the emphasis of that passage. What should we preach when it's the Passover or the Day of Atonement? We should preach Jesus. What about the temple, bro? Mm -hmm. We were having this conversation before we hit record. So there is an obsession in some circles with the temple and the rebuilding of the temple and all these kinds of things. And when we see the temple being built in the Old Testament, God's having a house built for him where he's going to dwell with his people. When we see the tabernacle even before that set up in in the camp of Israel, we should be preaching Jesus from those passages. Why? Because Jesus shows up on the scene and says himself, that he is the fulfillment of the temple. That's right. And so he is God's presence on earth. And then as he ascends and sends his Holy Spirit, the church is now the fulfillment of the temple. And the Spirit of God himself dwells in the church and with his people and the like. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no temple because God will be there. 
right? And the lamb will dwell among us and, and there's no need for a temple anymore. This is how we should preach the temple. And there are going to be people who are going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Should you preach the temple that way in the Old Testament? And I'm going to be like, well, yes, if we're a Christian, we should. That's if right. we're Christians. All, all of scripture is right? Christian scripture. It's like if, <laughs> and this is where I think I get really upset, John, with biblicism, uh, maybe yeah. as much as any place. Mm-hmm. Uh, Romans 2 and 3 gets me worked up. But this stuff really, really works me up because people almost call into question whether we should preach Christ from the Old Testament, from these things that prefigure him and point to him as though it's, well, okay, maybe you should, but that shouldn't be the emphasis of your sermon. And I'm like, my goodness, guys, the last time I checked, we are Christians and we preach Christian sermons, do we not? You know, And so, yeah, it's like we want to read Genesis or Exodus or Micah or Esther as Christians right. for crying out loud. That's right. You know, anyway, go ahead. Well, and I think there's a fear of allegorizing. There, there I, is. I'm, I remember when I was in Bible college and even in seminary, it's like, oh, we don't want to fall into that trap where we're allegorizing everything in the text and we're, we're putting things in the text that isn't there. And, and so, and, that, and that, that's a legitimate argument that you can't force into the text things that aren't there, which I would argue if you get, if you got five points of how to be faithful like David, because of the five Tell stones. Tell me where that's in the text. Yeah, not <laughs> in the text. No, it's not in the text at all. Um, you know, let me read you something real quick from a Romans 15. I think will make your point, Justin. Um, Paul says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us uh, please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And then Paul gives us the motivation. And interesting how he gives us motivation. Pay attention to this in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Okay, so he's referencing Christ. He's referencing our need to bear with the weak, and our motivation is the Old Testament leads us to hope. Yeah. There is no way you can conclude that Paul isn't meaning hope in Christ because he totally. just got done arguing for it in chapter 14. Well, I would say yeah. all of Romans. Yeah. But the the point of it is that anytime you see these New Testament writers referencing the Old Testament, they are referencing it as these are designed for endurance yes. and encouragement because the Old Testament gives us hope because what is the Old Testament about? It's about Jesus. It's I mean, about Jesus. One that, more example of a text of interpreting the Old Testament for us. Yeah, I know we said this last week. I'm going to say it again. I mean, whenever we do what we're describing, where we interpret and read and preach the Old Testament in this Christ-centered way, we're doing what Jesus told us to do, and we're doing what the apostles did. Right. Full stop. Like, so yeah, I understand there's a danger of allegorizing everything. And that is not at all what we are advocating for. All right. we're advocating for is to read the Old Testament the way the apostles read and understood it. Because there are there are countless examples, John, that we could give from Paul, from Peter, from the writer of the Hebrews, from John, where it's obvious that they see things in the Old Testament that if they were in a hermeneutics class in most modern day seminaries, they would get a failing grade for saying what they're saying. Because it's like, oh, well, what about the original author's intent? You know, did did the psalmist really mean in Psalm 68, were they really talking about Jesus's ascension and the giving of gifts, Paul, like you just say in Ephesians 4, you know, or whatever. And it's like, or the rock from 1 Corinthians 10, 4, like referencing Exodus 17. I mean, all of these things are just example after example after example after example of how the apostles read the Old Testament. 
the writer of the Hebrews, I mean, what's the sacrificial system about? What's the priesthood about? It's about Christ. It mm. all pointed to him, right? And why would we go back to something that's been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus? Abraham, what was Abraham about ultimately? He was, he was justified by faith as a pattern for everyone who would ever believe the promises of God realized in Messiah and we would be saved the same way. You know, and this is how we should read all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, the sna- you know, Jesus himself in John 3, the snake that's lifted up on a pole that's in right. Numbers 21, it's about him and how he would be raised up. You know, and when we look to him and what he's done, we're saved. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, well, yeah, we could go on and on and on, but we are running out of time. We did have one left. We're going to leave it for uh, the other podcast we're about to do. We're going to talk a little bit about eschatology mm. and uh, biblicism. Everybody's favorite topic. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, for those of you that are new and listening, we have a ministry called Semper Reformanda, Always Reforming. And we started this as a way to connect with um, our listeners, but also I think go to a deeper level. There are many who love what we're saying in Theocast, but have questions and really kind of want to go to that next level of conversation. And so Justin and I uh, kind of step into a different role in that way where we interact with our listeners a little bit more. And we kind of take this conversation to a, a little bit deeper level. And so you can join us called Simper Reformanda. And it's two things. One, it's a podcast that we do. But two, it's also a community. It's an online community and a, believe it or not, local community. And by mm. now, our app is out and you can go and sign up for Simper Reformanda, get our private podcast feed, and also join a group. You download our app and see what groups are available. You can join an online discussion group or you do it over Zoom or you can do it locally in your town. Those are growing. I think we're over 20 plus so far. People are getting signed up to start their own. So if you want to learn more about that, you can go to theocast.org. Excited to continue this conversation. We'll see you next week.